The Inside Transportation Podcast is sponsored by Ford Motor Company. Built on the belief that freedom of movement drives human progress from connectivity to autonomy, AI to machine learning, Ford has one simple goal, to improve mobility for its customers. To learn more about Ford's work in mobility, autonomous vehicles, and their corporate efforts to improve mobility for its customers, visit corporate.ford.com. That's corporate.ford.com. The Inside Transportation Podcast is also sponsored by Fenwick & West. Fenwick & West is one of the world's first and leading law firms dedicated to technology and transportation. Learn more about how Fenwick can help companies tackle the complex, legal, and business issues of autonomous transportation at Fenwick.com. That's F-E-N-W-I-C-K.com. Hello, everyone. Hope you're all staying safe. This is the Inside Transportation Podcast, a production of Inside.com. My name is Johan Marino, and I'm the writer of the Inside Transportation and Inside Electric Vehicles newsletters. And I am joined here by angel investor, Inside.com CEO, and Zoom yogi, Jason Kalkanis. Ah, uh, we had a fun uh, podcast last podcast, huh? It went pretty well. Yeah, I mean, and uh, thanks to everyone who subscribed and, and rated our podcast. If you haven't caught our interview with Sandy Monroe of Monroe and Associates last week, I would take a listen. It was a really good conversation about Tesla and the electric vehicle space. Um, and if you have any suggestions um, for anyone that you'd like to see interviewed on the podcast, go ahead and, and send me a tweet. My uh, Twitter is at dude johan and jason's is at jason um but before uh we we jump into that let's let's get into some of these news stories for the week how about that jason sounds great oh. sounds great i also like learning about um you know his business itself like how they run their business oh yeah i mean it's fascinating how all these companies spend so much time dissecting vehicles and you know selling all that data to different automakers and stuff like that so it was a really interesting deep dive for sure he said he was like he did one car on spec for two million dollars, like broke yeah. apart for two million dollars. I was like, whoa, it's pretty great. Yeah, Sandy Monroe, uh, really interesting content on YouTube. Yeah. All right, let's get into sure. it. What's going on this week? Um, have you been ordering any takeout lately, Jason, or any delivery? Uh, I have been at my office, Cloud Kitchens, uh, Travis's new company is across the street from us in San Francisco, and uh, we get the Bel Campo burgers and. Some chicken wings that are chicken strips that are pretty good. Oh man, I love um, Bel Campo burger. I've had it before. It's delicious. Bel Campo is ridiculous. Yeah, it's so great. And then um, picking it up is quite nice. Um, they have a really good um, coronavirus like protocol. Like there's a line across the street. Everybody's spaced out. They have lockers. You come in. You don't have to touch anything. Your name's on the board, and each of the lockers is numbered. But it doesn't have a lock on it, so you could just open it up and take anybody else's food. But obviously, nobody's going to do that with cameras and everything. And you pay zero delivery fees. You just go there and pick it up. And it's across the street. And it it's obviously faster than having to go meet some driver. Right. And it eliminates another person touching your food. So all of those things, um, I love the, I love, and people don't know that in Uber Eats, you can pick pickup. Mm-hmm. Most people think it's delivery only, but if you pick pickup, you're going to save a lot of money. And it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that because lately there's been a lot of controversy around food delivery services. I mean, obviously right now, 
Demand for food delivery is at an all-time high, but with the spike also comes questions about how much delivery apps like Uber Eats, DoorDash, and Grubhub are keeping from each sale. Some restaurant owners have complained that these services, which have provided a crucial lifeline for a lot of these businesses, are offering little room to make a profit. One restaurant owner said Uber Eats takes as much as 30% of revenue. Some of these services have argued that they provide a marketing service to these restaurants while also paying drivers out. Um, but a lot of this controversy kind of arose earlier this week when a viral oh, tweet yeah. showed that Grubhub was paying out a restaurant about $376 um, worth of like $1,000 in orders. Um, and we'll put the tweet in the show notes. But basically, um, they got like a third <laughs> of what they made. Yeah, well, revenue. you know, it's a little disingenuous too. Like you always have to be careful with these viral tweets and these receipts because everybody knows I was an early Uber investor. And so I used to get like, people would show me receipts like this person drove for four hours and they only got paid $30 and that's $7 an hour or whatever. And they'd be like, oh, okay, they drove somewhere and then there was some credit that was given because there was some dispute and the person you're counting the three hours they had to drive back and there was a wildfire. Like literally every time this like receipt rage happens, you have to take a minute and pause and say, is this the average or is this, you know, is this the standard or is this an outlier? Because the rage receipts tend to be outliers. And this one is an outlier, in fact, because if you look at it, there were 46 prepaid orders that generated $1,042 in revenue. So mm -hmm. let's just put that number there on the side. Um, so $1,000 will make it really easy for people to, to follow along here. Now, when you look at it, the commission was $206, which is 20%, right? Mm -hmm. That seems reasonable to me for providing this restaurant with, a, with customers. Then there was a delivery commission of $94. Okay, I don't know what the difference between those two things are, but I guess in Grubhub's world, uh, the delivery commission rate, if Grubhub delivers your orders, this rate applies to your food. But I guess you don't have to use Grubhub. You could use your own delivery people, right? Right. So that puts us at two, $300, which is 30%, which seems standard. That's what the app, char app store charges. And 30% to me seems like a reasonable fee. Where it gets weird here is there's a promotions line on him for $231. This is something that the owner of the business opted into to market their service. And people don't know about this, but like Yelp, Grubhub, and I think DoorDash does it as well. I'm not sure if Uber Eats does. Um, you can pay marketing every month to put yourself at the top of the list. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so that, that if you're looking at the statement right now, and we're going to drop it in the show notes. Uh, basically, this marketing cost is under the promotions line. Um, right. It's about $231. Um, 23%. That person opted in. They chose to spend marketing dollars. And then the next one is seven order adjustment, which, which I think is kind means of interesting. people sent I was kind of food back, about that right? One. I think it doesn't say what that is, but I think that's when somebody ordered something and didn't get it. Mm. So if you take out those two, you're taking out $362, which is the 36% netting out the 30%, which the whole controversy goes away. In other words, a restaurant need not promote to put themselves on the homepage. Why would a restaurant choose to give up 23% of their revenue? Well, they might be brand building. They might decide, you know what? I want everybody to know, or they might have a very high margin business. Might be a ramen store that says, you know what? Uh, doing some marketing and building a name for ourselves is smart business, and we have such a high margin. We're looking at this as an investment to build the brand. So again, 
whenever you see something with a rage tweet or a rage receipt or a rage customer service issue, I always pause for a second and try to look holistically at it. I think this is much ado about nothing in the Grubhub receipt, but mm -hmm. I do think there is a bigger issue of um, the sustainability of these businesses that I would love to get into. Yeah, I mean, but what are your thoughts? Some, some of these delivery services argue that they're providing a marketing service to restaurants, right? And then you also have to realize, and this is something that I don't think people initially think about, is that there's a high cost to like executing these services, not just on the tech end, right? Because everything is kind of optimized on this customer experience, right? Uh, you know, you want your food fast, you want it sent to you by like a dedicated person or and whatnot. Um, and there's a substantial cost to that. Um, Absolutely. I mean, because, you know, what is it going to take for someone to get out and deliver food these days, right? You're going to have to pay them at least like you know, anywhere from, I guess, depending on where you live, anywhere between 15 to $25 an hour, right? And that seems to be the rate that people are getting in the major cities, yes. Right. Which is, which is, a, good, which is a good rate, by the way. That's more than I think the Apple Store or Target or Starbucks pay. Yeah, and then there's also like the, the ti like timing-wise, right? You're not always going to be making $25 an hour, right? But when it's hot, when it's dinner time. And by the way, I know this because I used to deliver for Postmates back in the day. So I have a really? little experience there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I do. Well, when you were doing that, right? Like you, if th this is the other like insincere, um, intellectually dishonest argument. If you were working for Postmates, when you were working for it, Johan, yes. did you... When you looked at how much money you made, if you sat there for three hours and got, I don't know, three orders, did you look at it as the three hours divided by the three orders? If two of those hours you had no business and you were on your phone or reading a book? I, I, I never saw it in terms of orders, right? It was always time. So if I went out for like 10 hours, because I would sometimes, because you know, I was a college student, I was just trying to make some extra money, which I'm sure a lot of the people who you know deliver for these services were in that same boat. Some people see it as full-time income, whatever. But, um, you know, I'd go out for like 10 hours and I would pull in like a good, I don't know, 150 bucks, 170 bucks. And I okay. divided it by hour, right? So I was making like $17 an hour, $19 an hour. And if you're- What was your utilization uh, in terms of your time? Were you working half the time, a third of the time on average? Probably like half the time. And the other half. What did you do with the other half the time? <laughs> Doing what? I'd just sit in the car and listen to the radio. That's what I would do and relax. Yeah. So and... this is where the debate is. So when people would come at me about Uber, I would be getting the statistics from Uber on how much they were paying per hour. They would be calculating it, and I don't know how they do it now. This is literally ten years ago. They would be looking at that ten-hour period and saying, "Okay, you were working for us for five hours. Therefore, you made." In your case, if it was 17 to 19, let's just make it 18, uh, the, the average of those two numbers, you would be making, in Uber's mind, you were making double that, $36 an hour. That's why they were advertising. Hey, you're going to make like $36 an hour when you are working. You might look at it and say, there's downtime, therefore I'm making half that amount, right? Right. And the truth is somewhere between those two, because you do get to reclaim that time and read a book or do some other work or listen to podcasts or whatever, which you might be doing at home if you were unemployed anyway. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think this whole minimum wage and how much are people making. And I think now this has reached equilibrium in the market because the, the ride sharing pays people for the time going to pick somebody up, not for the return time, 
mm-hmm. but the going to picking somebody up time, which kind of then I think takes that downtime and splits it in half between the platform and the individual. Right. And and one thing that did happen was San Francisco tried to help restaurant owners by placing a commission cap in, in your neck of the woods. So uh, I think the cap was placed at 15%. And in response, Uber actually stopped delivering to Treasure Island in, of in San course. Francisco. Why um, lose money? I, you might want to give me some more background because I'm not from the Bay Area. Tell me a little bit about Treasure Island specifically. Why, All right, why so, do you think Uber okay, you, Everybody knows the Golden Gate Bridge that goes from San Francisco up to the northern part of uh, California where like Sonoma is and Napa. Mm-hmm. Then there's a, the Bay Bridge. Now that goes east to Oakland, Berkeley, and you know if you go further enough east, Tahoe and uh, et cetera. That's good to know. I never knew that. <laughs> so there's just it's two bridges, right? Yeah. So one is the north bridge and one is the east bridge. Right. The east bay bridge um, is actually two bridges with an island in the middle called Treasure Island. When you're going halfway over the bridge, it's really weird. It's like, oh, you can exit halfway off the bridge and do this big circle down to an island where people live. In other words, it is a pain in the neck to get to. Mm-hmm. So if you were to order from a restaurant in San Francisco, this would be like leaving Manhattan on the Brooklyn Bridge. If the Brooklyn Bridge was 10 times longer and then going to an island between Manhattan and Brooklyn, you wouldn't do it, right? Mm-hmm. It adds a lot of cost. And I think this is Uber's way of kind of sticking it to um, the local politicians here who Uber's uniquely qualified to do in my experience. They're, they're really good at mixing it up. And politicians really shouldn't be, in my mind, putting their thumb on the scale. There's Unless there was a, a competition problem, but there is not. You can use Grubhub, Postmates, DoorDash, Uber Eats, um, and then a lot, I'm seeing a lot as an investor, people building software for direct ordering from the restaurant to eliminate all fees and letting the restaurants deliver it. And I just had on my podcast this week in startups, the founder of Slice, which charges pizzerias just $2 per order, not a percentage. Well, just so $2. There is massive, That's crazy. Just $2 an order. Yeah, it's amazing. Plus the service fee, mm-hmm. which is like just the passing along the 3% credit card fees. But anyway, long story short, government should not get involved in pricing uh, or picking winners, because once you put the thumb on the scale, you'll have unintended consequences. And that's the issue here. It's it's sort of like the minimum wage. You want to have a great minimum wage, but you also have to think about the context of America being, you know, living in New York and San Francisco is radically different than living in Nashville, Austin, or, you know, the, the city that's even further out from those. And if you make a, a $15 minimum wage or a $20 minimum wage in you know, San Francisco or Seattle, that's going to be fine because you can sustain it. But if you put a 15 or $20 minimum wage in some other parts of the country, that might be unsustainable and those jobs would go away. So I'm not a, an economist, but I do think the government, when there's competition, should step back and let the free market decide. But what did you say that this is also an issue with user expectations, right? Because the way Uber Eats and Postmates and all these different services got so many users on the platform was because it was like, okay, one ninety nine delivery fee, right? Sure. Or like $5 delivery fee. And these prices were probably set up as, as promo prices just to get people in the fold. And now that's become the expectation, right? Versus what it actually costs the restaurants and what it costs 100% Uber. correct. And I, I think it's time to kind of realign like what these services should cost. Like if you want to get 100%. food delivery, you have to pay for it. And yeah, it's got to be at least 20 bucks or something, you know, 10, 20 bucks to get food delivered in a major city. 
Um, and this can vary because some food is high margin. Therefore, the margin is baked into the price of the food. I mentioned before, like ramen might be, where it's noodles and sauce, you know, and an egg. Um, other stuff might not have, a burger might not have the same margin, right? And so this is where the free market is really good at hashing these things out. A high-end restaurant, which has to use a lot of packaging and has very expensive um, teams, they might charge a lot for delivery. And then somebody doing pizza or ramen might offer free delivery. And viva la difference, let the market decide. And the, the great ar irony here is that you know journalists and the public have been, uh, some sections of the public have been, uh, criticizing the money-losing Silicon Valley companies. That's been the narrative. Mm -hmm. So now you have companies attempting to not go out of business during a crisis because demand is spiking and charging enough to not lose money. And now they're getting criticized for doing that. And at the same time, you're criticizing them for not paying the drivers enough and that ongoing debate. And they're raising prices so they can also get drivers on the road because let's face it, drivers on the front line, we talked about that in a previous episode, you need to pay them more. So again, to your point, the customer does need to pay more. And I think uh, I've been giving you know very large tips. I'm lucky enough to do that, be able to do that. But I've also seen in Uber Eats and other services the ability to give like $2 or $5 directly to the restaurant. I don't know if you've seen that. And then they're matching those. Mm -hmm. So I do think like the ability to donate, and I, and I, 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 I uh, tweeted at Jeff Bezos and I emailed him saying, why don't we have the ability to tip our Amazon driver. Mm. I would set a 10, 20% trip tip for every Amazon package coming or put in a $5 or $10 tip just for every box that comes. I can afford to do that. I know they're taking a risk. And you know, if only one in five customers does that and they deliver to 20 customers a day, it could wind up being an extra 20, 30, 40 bucks a day, which might be very significant. You said you made 150, 200 a day. That extra 30 bucks could be a, a really great, uh, you know, um, no, yeah. Bonus. A nice little boost. And and one thing I will say before we go off to break is it's kind of interesting because the playing field is leveled right now. I mean, if you're a small mom and pop restaurant, I mean, and, and obviously, you know, a, a bigger chain restaurant might throw all this money into marketing. But I mean, at, at this point, I kind of see that there is a, a like a lev more level playing field between like mom and pop restaurants and big yes. boys. Right. Because. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, they, they can't even operate. The big the big players are just uh, shutting down right now because keeping a hundred, 200 seat restaurant open to do 30 deliveries a day doesn't work. But. If you have a 20-seat place, it actually kind of does. Mm. It's counterintuitive, right? Yeah. Well, hey, when we come back from break, we're going to be talking about transportation habits changing after COVID-19. We uh, we're going to oh, look boy, into the we, results yeah. of a study from IBM here on the Inside Transportation podcast. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. just want to let you know that this episode of Inside Transportation is sponsored by our friends at the Ford Motor Company built on the belief that freedom of movement drives human progress from connectivity to autonomy. Ford has one simple goal, and that's to improve the mobility of its customers. Ford has been using technology to shape the future of transportation for over 100 years and is dedicated to solving the world's most pressing mobility issues. What you might not know is that Ford has a series of divisions that make these visions a reality. Ford X is Ford's venture incubator, that unites entrepreneurs, designers, and engineers to shape the future of transportation. Ford's City Innovations team brings innovative ideas to life through community workshops, crowdsourcing initiatives, and citywide mobility challenges. 
And Spin, a property of Ford, brings e-scooter sharing to cities and college campuses. So here's your call to action. To learn more about Ford's work in mobility, autonomous vehicles, and their global efforts to improve mobility for its customers, visit corporate.ford.com. That's corporate.ford.com. Thanks again to Ford for sponsoring independent media like this podcast. And we're back here on the Inside Transportation Podcast. Uh, Johan Marino, Jason Calcanis, running through some of the week's most important transportation stories. Uh, we're going to keep going here with transportation habits changing after COVID-19. Uh, IBM surveyed 17,000 people who gave some insights on how they might change their transportation habits after COVID-19. 20% said they no longer plan to take public transportation. So this means buses, trains, and subways. Uh, another 28% said they planned on taking public transit less frequently. Um, and also, like 17, more than 17% of those who responded to the survey said they would use their vehicle more often as a result of COVID-19, with one in four saying they would use it as an exclusive mode of transportation. Um, so I guess the question here that I have for you, Jason, is do you think all of these survey respondents are just feeling this way because of the current situation? And these trends are probably going to change once there's a vaccine, because I mean, I think it'll be common to see mass and temperature checks with public transit, um, but I don't think this is going to change transportation trends in some areas like New York, right? You're not going to see a, a ton more people have their own personal cars and drive around uh, more populous areas like Manhattan. So I'm kind of curious to see what you have to say about this. Yeah, so I do think um, that surveying people in the middle of a pandemic has some inherent you know, fear in it, uh, some understandable fear, right? Like, oh my God, right. this is going to change forever. But as we saw after 9-11, the financial crisis, the dot-com bust, you know, the last three or four um, really horrible uh, challenges we've had as a nation, not much changed. So the question is here, is this time different? And sometimes this time is different. This time does in fact feel different. We've never had, 9-11 was an acute situation in New York City, but the rest of the country as bad as they felt about it, they kind of sprung back very quickly, whereas New York, it took time. This is the opposite. Like everybody around the world is being impacted almost universally. Um, almost nobody has been spared from uh, being sheltered in place, et cetera. So uh, this could be different. What I do think is that the New York City, and this is just a, a theory, but I, I'm starting to hear it more and more, transportation was a key piece of the spread of this disease. First, on airplanes, and obviously we did not anticipate when we shut down the flights from China that China was not the place to worry about, that Italy and Europe was the place to worry about, and that those places come into New York City and Chicago right, yeah. where outbreaks were very severe. So how would you ever know that? It's a Chinese-born uh, disease. It came out of China. I know that's controversial to say, but it's just a fact, right. so please don't at me. <laughs> like I'm not calling it the Wuhan virus, but you know, I, it it's also did come from it, Wuhan. Yeah. Yeah, it's just the origin. Calm down. That's I mean, it's so ridiculous that people can't even speak about this objectively without people blowing a gasket and being virtual signaling snowflakes. The but Twitter PC it, culture. <laughs> it's bonkers. Though <laughs> the virus that originated in China, you would think would have come here from China. It did not. It came from Europe. Mm -hmm. Then where did it go to? It went to a place where six million people a day get on tiny tubes 
in which 10 or 20 people get on and off every platform and the average ride is probably a dozen, I would say eight to 12 stops. In other words, you're circulating people in a dense environment underground and this thing dies in sunlight according to reports. So, and the New York City subway system is almost universally underground right. and it's packed and it's got velocity of people coming on and off of it. It is the perfect breeding system. Nobody can understand why New York City got hit to a level that other places didn't. It's density. It's the subway. It's so obvious and clear as day to me, having been a New Yorker and been on those subways. When they talk about the proximity of spittle and like the air and you watch those videos with the infrared showing sneezes, mm -hmm. you've seen those videos on yeah, YouTube I have, now, yeah. I'm sure. When I was on the New York City subway system, you were touching at rush hour two or three people unintentionally. You would have one person on one shoulder tapping you, another person on the other. Your hand on the on the dirty pole would be touching another person's hand. Right. You were constantly touching people, and you could smell people's breath. You could smell two or three people's breath. Right. I mean, I know this is getting graphic. I don't want to trigger <laughs> well, you. Well, it's it's the way of life, right? Living in New York City, that you're is used the way to of life in yeah. New York City. Now, when you go to Japan, I don't know if you've ever been. Uh, people are wearing masks proactively on the subway. Some people wear them every day because of this reason, and they're packed just as tightly. That's what happened here. So I do think that people are going to look at the subway very differently and that we're going to have to think about um, for the year maybe after this, spacing out usage of the subway, maybe letting you know some people or uh, get on the subway or a certain number of people get on at each stop and maybe having a queue where people are going to have to decide, you know, do I want to get on this thing at rush hour? Because I might have to wait half an hour to get on the platform. And they only let a certain number of people on the platform at a time. So, Jason, the I mean, in terms empty. of people riding the subway in New York City, right? And I've been a few times. I, I, I when I was there, I, I was a little bougie. I just took the the taxi and, and Ubers like the whole time. I had actually never. I think yeah. I stepped into a subway once. Um, and it's it, fantastic. It was not that crowded, <laughs> but um, besides like the subway, I mean, how else can you really get around in New York City? Like what would, uh, what, would, yeah, yeah. what alternatives uh, would even be presented? People, there are commuter buses, so they're expensive though. So like you know six, seven, eight dollars each way. So people coming from Brooklyn or Staten Island will take a commuter bus, like a a, a nice coach style bus, mm -hmm. um, and then other people bike uh, and scooter and those kind of things. Uh, but obviously you have snow and rain and cold, where you know in the winter <laughs> you do not want to get on a bicycle in the winter. Certainly you know when there's snow and ice, you're not getting on a bicycle. Although I used to ride my Vespa in the snow. <laughs> sometimes in the rain. Uh, but I was a, I was a maniac 20-something. But yeah, no, New York is requires it. I think what the survey doesn't take into account is how many companies are going to allow people to stay remote. Mm. Because this is the real key issue for me. As a business owner myself or you know other small business owners, you know, if we're running a pizzeria or you're running a business, do you really want your keyboard jockey employees to come to work? No. Do you really want to risk it? No. Do you want to be the one responsible for sending, let's say you were a newspaper like the New York Times. Do you want to have everybody come back to the office and then there's an outbreak at the New York Times and you made the decision that people who could have worked from home easily got on the subway from Brooklyn and Queens and Williamsburg, whatever, and they, they, they got coronavirus, God forbid? I think a lot of business owners are going to just shelf 2020 if their people work behind keyboards and then everybody else will go back to work. And then depending on what happens, I saw today at the taping of this on May 4th um, that we were down to 200 people dying in New York City, which is tragic and horrible. Mm -hmm. But I remember when the number, I don't know if you watch Cuomo's briefings, 
uh, which are excellent. He always starts with the numbers, and he's he's you know really self-deprecating and straight up and honest and uh, hardworking. Right. All the things that you know make you love New Yorkers. And I, when I remember when it was at nine hundred, just thinking to myself when it was going up, please God, don't let this go to nine thousand because I remember three thousand people dying on nine eleven. I just did the math. I was like, three days of this is a nine. Every three days of this is going to be a nine eleven. Yeah. How how can any society sustain a 9-11 every three days mm. and thank god praise jesus i'm an atheist but praise jesus that we are now at 200 a day and falling and you know if the number gets to 20 and we i, I am an optimist i think the people are going to wear the mask they're going to distance they're going to wash their hands they're not going to touch the poles on the subway they're going to wear gloves they're going to space out and some people are going to work from home so i think and 20 percent of people in new york have it according to the early testing that means those people, in all likelihood, we don't know this for perfectly, will be blockers. In other words, they won't transfer the disease. I think New York's going to get through it, and I think it's going to get through it quicker than people think. Yeah. And I'm an optimist. I, a number here just sent to us by producer Nick. So just to compare San Francisco's annual ridership versus New York's. So San Francisco gets about 125 million annual riders. New York subway system gets 1.7 billion riders. So you can see the magnitude of um, yeah, how of big New York's transit system is. Um, another thing I was going to mention, because you had mentioned 9-11 briefly. Um, so 18% of those surveyed in 2002, so this was right after 9-11, said they were very afraid of airline travel. And then just four years later, that number decreased to 10%. So I think, like like you said, initially, there's going to be a lot of skepticism about getting onto these like, you know, public transit systems, ride hailing airplanes. There's going to be some apprehension. But then once we get a vaccine, once things calm down, I, I, I think things are going to go back to normal, um, which is kind of I, interesting. I'm, I believe that as well. I remember after 9-11, it might be slightly controversial. People were getting on airlines, walking up and down the aisles, looking for Muslim males in a certain age range and reporting them to the flight attendants. I saw this happen where people were going up and down and saying, I think this person's suspicious. And the entire <laughs> dialogue was see something, say something. Remember that? Yeah, I remember. Of like point something out if you see something. They were basically saying point out people who you think might be groups of terrorists. And there were all these reports. If you go back and do searches of, you know, it would be three Middle Eastern people or people who looked Middle Eastern coming back from you know, Columbia and going home to, you know, Chicago or something on a flight. And because they were three people who looked like they fit the profile of the 9-11 hijackers, they would get questioned. Um, and here we are, you know, uh, you know, or even four or five years later, people are like, the TSA is so dumb. This is so ridiculous. And why are we doing this? There's no terrorist attacks. And so people do have a short memory. The thing that I think will not be a short memory is working from home. Because people are now getting an education in remote work and which positions it works for. And it works so well for certain positions, like a writer or a customer support person, that the arduous nature of a commute, let's say commutes over two hours a day, you know, one hour each way, both employers and employees are going to say, you know what, let's split that two hours. I'll work from home. You give me a setup at home. I'll put a little extra time in or we'll all just save money. And then that's going to lead to more globalization. In other words, you know, 90% of companies did not believe in remote work in my experience. 
only like these weird, you know, Matt Mullenweg at uh, WordPress or some really unique companies believed in this and right. they like made it their thing. But most companies did not believe in it. Now, since 100% are forced to do it, this is going to be the big sea change. Yes. And I have a theory I want to share here on the on the okay. podcast um, good theory. with work at home, right? This is my vision for the future. Mm-hmm. Everyone who's working in New York and LA right now and all these major hubs, San Francisco, they're going to say, hey, I'm working from home, you know, four days a week, five, like, you know, three days a week out of the week. I just want to go full remote. I'm going to move like 200 miles away from here. Or, 100%. Yeah. Or like 50 miles away from here. I'm going to get a really nice house because I can't afford that in, in LA or in uh, 100%. San Francisco. And I'm just going to work remotely. And when I have to go to the big city, if I want to go enjoy myself, if I want to go to a concert, if I want to go to a work meeting, because I'm sure from time to time there will still be work meetings or conferences, I'm going to get into my Tesla that's going to drive me automatically to the office and I can just read a book, watch a movie. By the way, I don't think this is a very original vision because I've heard this like expressed before by many people. That's 100%. And maybe you'll grab an Airbnb in the city because there'll be more places available and hotels will be cheaper again and staying overnight in san francisco or new york might become a hundred dollar proposition and so you might be like you know what i'll work from home four days a week i'll go in on wednesday i'll stay over it'll cost me a hundred bucks it'll come out of my pocket it doesn't have to come out of my employer's pocket i'll do thursday as well and on monday tuesday friday i'll work from st louis obispo or we're seeing it in sacramento here which is 75 miles i think 80 miles outside of San Francisco. Uh, I'm seeing it in Napa and Healdsburg and other places north of the city. It, it's actually becoming uh, this long distance commuting for short number of trips per week is, I think, the future. And there are actually in Southern California, I got pitched on these a whole bunch of times, commuter airlines coming out. So imagine you live in Lake Arrowhead and you fly into, you know, Van Nuys or Burbank, the old days, I guess, yeah. Santa, or Burbank, Santa Monica Airport. I think Air, Santa Monica is going to be shut down, I heard. But, you know, these little commuter flights going from the Orange County up to Van Nuys or whatever, working, uh, and Surfair is another company that does this. So that those are going to be very interesting, too, is these little commuter turboprops. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how all of that develops. Um, but it's time for another break here. And after, the, after a few words from our sponsors, we're going to be talking about some auto dealers who are saying they are running out of pickup trucks. So there's a little Wait, bit of what? a supply issue. Yeah, in COVID what? times. Uh, we'll be talking more oh. about that on the Inside Transportation podcast when we come back. Hey, everybody. Let me take a moment to thank Fenwick and West. They're one of the world's first and leading law firms dedicated to technology and life sciences. They operate in the fast lane of innovation where ideas often outpace changes in the law. That's where you find Fenwick's autonomous transportation and shared mobility practice. Steering startups, technology giants, and major automotive companies through rapidly evolving legal, business, and regulatory challenges, which we talk about here on Inside Transportation all the time. A Silicon Valley original, Fenwick is a national law firm with offices in Mountain View, San Francisco, Seattle, New York, Santa Monica, and even Shanghai. So here's your call to action. Learn more about how Fenwick can help companies tackle the complex legal and business issues of autonomous transportation at Fenwick.com. That's F-E-N-W-I-C-K.com. Thanks again to Fenwick for providing great legal services to me. I use them personally uh, for, and for our investments. And 
uh, for supporting independent media like Inside Transportation. Let's get back to this amazing episode. And we're back here on the Inside Transportation podcast. Jason Calcanis, Johan Marino. We're just chopping it up here on some of the hottest transportation news and trends. Um, one of them being pickup trucks. Um, Jason, what do you think about pickup trucks in general? Would you do you have a pickup truck? Do you want one? What are some of your thoughts there? I. Uh, it's a great question. I have uh, been enjoying going skiing in Tahoe with my ten-year-old daughter That's the last great. couple of years. <laughs> And uh, last year, the two times we went, I was in the Tesla Model 3 both times. Uh, no, the Model X one time and the Model 3 the other time. And there were massive snowstorms, in fact, blizzards, and all the roads were closed and there were avalanches. So even if you had a four-wheel drive truck, you were in better shape, but you still couldn't get out. And then the four-wheel drive trucks with chains and everything could get out, then we got out next. Anyway, long story short, um, I was thinking about getting like a little uh, cabin out there and I've been looking and researching trucks. And I like this Jeep. There's like a Jeep Wrangler pickup truck. I don't know sure what they call it, but it's got like a pickup truck in the back. Um, and then obviously I like the Cyber truck. I've been thinking about that one. And I've always loved the Land Rover Defenders. We talked about that in the last right, podcast. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of torn on it. They said it's the most technically sophisticated one. But I have this dream of driving in snow when other people can't. <laughs> like and having like a Wrangler or something. I've always wanted to do that. I've always wanted to drive by a bunch of cars that couldn't get it done, you know? <laughs> Feels like a real manly, like cool thing to do. Go skiing when other people are stuck on the side of the road. Get a, what do they call that, a wench? The wench in the front and just hook it up to some car that's off the side of the road and help them get out. I want to do that. So yeah, I have been thinking about it and I've been looking at some of the, like, the old versions of some of these things. So yeah, I, I like it. But why on earth would there be a shortage at a time when everybody's under massive financial duress. And I would, I, that's confounding to me. Yeah. So What's just some issue? background here. Auto sales have been down about 50% in the U.S. in general. Okay. Right? Makes so we're sense. talking about trucks, SUVs, sedans. Mm -hmm. So year over year, they were down 50% in April. Um, dealers are starting mm. to see a recovery though, because all these automakers like GM and uh, I believe Ford, so the American automakers, have primarily been offering 84-month 0% APR offers to push out what? cars. Yeah. Wait, how many years is 84 months? It's like seven years, right? <laughs> wait, wait. So 0% interest and seven-year loan? Yeah, seven years. Wow. So 84 months. That's juicy. I don't need that loan, but I might take it anyway. I, well, th that's the thing, right, is that... They, they did like an analysis and I think like a quarter of all purchases are taking these loans. Um, previously, and I, I, I might be misquoting this number, but it was somewhere around like five to 10%. Uh, mm. Previously, like consumers taking 0% loans on these cars, right? So right. there's been a really big rush for people to buy trucks right now because trucks are really expensive. Like a good pickup truck will probably cost you up to $100,000. Right. Well, how did that happen? I thought when I saw this pickup truck thing, I thought, oh, pickup truck is like, you know, 20, 30, 40 grand. And then somebody told me, like, are you an idiot? They're like $80,000. Like, how is a pickup truck 80000 What justifies that? And then I talked to a friend of mine. He said, that's where all the margin is in cars. Yes. The is options. In, it's sort of like the iPhone of cars is these pickup trucks. Why is the pickup truck more expensive than a car? Is it better engine or something? Or just they can charge? No, it's all the customization and options that you can add to um, the truck, right? So at the yeah. end of it all, it, like, you know, I know this because I've worked with a lot of auto dealers and I have a lot of dealers as friends. Um, 
their margin comes from all the accessories and everything that you can bundle together into that car. And mm-hmm. they tell you, hey, if you bundle everything when you're buying the car, you can roll it into your monthly purchase, right? So mm. it's rolled into that 84-month. Um, Got no, it. Anyway. But uh, one dealer who actually operates dealerships in Colorado and Florida said they only had a 30-day supply of the Chevrolet Silverado, which is one of Chevy's top pickup trucks. Um, yep. And the most sought-after pickup trucks are becoming harder to find because of a few reasons, actually. Not just because COVID-19 has shut down all of the assembly lines for the automakers. Uh, that, that's but, the obvious reason. Yeah, but also last year, I don't know if you remember, but there was an, a United Auto Workers GM strike that happened hmm. in like... October, I believe. And that shut down plants for a whole month. So they've already been kind of behind on production. Um, Some insights from auto dealers. These people are interested in the product. They've been cooped up. They've done their research. So a lot of these buyers are just going in, picking up the car, signing the paperwork and leave, leaving, um, Mm. which is great for the auto dealer because they're not interacting with so many people just kind of kicking the tires. Um, So America's obviously in love with the pickup truck. Another thing that's happening next year is that Tesla and Rivian are coming out with their pickup trucks. Um, do you wait, wait, I thought the is the is the is the Cybertruck coming out next year or two years? So for, it's for slated Tesla. for production next year, so in, in 2021. Oh. Um, so we're going to start seeing some mm. Cybertrucks hopefully get off of the assembly line by 2021. Rivian is okay. also a big electric. I don't know if we've actually spoken about Rivian on the podcast yet. But I, they, they're good looking. I saw it in the newsletter and the interior was was not as good looking to me as the Model X with the, you know, the captain's chairs, but it was good looking in white. I thought it was a good looking car. Yeah. Um, you like it? Oh, I love Rivian. I mean, if, if I could get one and if I had the money, if they were available, I would absolutely get one. I mean, they. What they, do they cost? Uh, gonna be they 60, started 70, about 65 K. They haven't so finalized a lot of the pricing yet. But it's going to cost around sixty-five k, and then I think they're going to have all the incentives that are no longer available to um, Tesla vehicles, at least federally. Um, but anyway, my question to you is like, okay, everyone loves pickup trucks, but we see these different models coming out from Tesla and Rivian. I mean, do you think that the buyer of a Chevrolet Silverado is going to be the same buyer as, you know, a Tesla Cybertruck? And I think we briefly mentioned this or talked about this last week um, with Sandy. Um, But I'm kind of curious what some of your thoughts are as far as like who's actually going to be buying the Cybertruck. Yeah, I think Sandy's comments were interesting. He he does think they're two different markets, but he does think he's one of the crossover people. Um, and so I, I think that this is a situation where the, where the pie gets bigger. So I have noticed in San Francisco, some of these city slickers liken to have a pickup truck in their, like, you know, armada mm. in their fleet. So they, you know, people have two or three cars cause you're California, you got driveways, whatever. And so I see people picking up like junkers or having a second car. Uh, that's a pickup truck, uh, you know, for weekend warriors or going to Tahoe, whatever it is. And so, yeah, I, I, I do think that this. We could be entering a new muscle car era. I feel like the pickup trucks are like the modern day muscle cars. If you want to have like power or whatever, instead of getting, you know, a Mustang or a Camaro or whatever, um, you get a pickup truck, right? That's like the raw power. And the utility of it's great. And with gas prices getting cheap and there being an electronic, uh, an electric version, for me, that means you get both segments. The people who love gas and ice engines and who love the fact that 
I heard gasoline's like a dollar fifty in some places. It's really cheap. A gallon? Yeah. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Um, I mean, it's a problem for the ozone layer, obviously. But there's a bunch of people like me uh, who are never going to buy an ICE engine again. I, I mean, I really got tempted with the Corvette C8. I love Corvettes, and everybody's going crazy, and it looks so good as a convertible. But you're staying true Man, to the I, cause. <laughs> it's really hard for me, I'll be totally honest. I mean, I, I almost feel like I want to just have one. I just want to have a Corvette again for a year, but I'm just going to wait one more year, and hopefully the C9 or C10 comes out electric, and I can buy a Corvette again this lifetime. But I'm not. I was actually thinking of buying an old Corvette, like a 70s mm. Corvette, just for the fun of it, because I, I was thinking that, uh, you know, in the downturn, there might be more available because they were getting pretty hot and just not worth the price in my mind. So anyway. It's a nice quarantine I, I do think, project. <laughs> but, you know, I did a search on it. I was like muscle cars, like prices, you know, during pandemic or whatever. And one of them said that the prices went up because more people, to your point, are doing research online. Yeah. So it seems like people's free time leads to them being able to make that considered purchase and might actually drive more e-commerce. So who knows? It's so hard to figure out what's going on in the world right now, right? Yeah, and I, like I think the people that are buying pickup trucks right now, taking advantage of these crazy offers. I mean, seven a seven year loan at zero percent is pretty insane. Um, it's bonkers. But you know, people probably already had like a pickup truck purchase in mind, so they're mm. like, you know what? It just got them off the fence. Yeah, it's just like, hey, I'll just go for it because even if I lose my job. Um, you know, I can afford to make the payments because I'm not paying the interest. Yeah, it's going to be 200 bucks a month, 300 bucks a month payment, right? So Right, yeah. It's not going to be that bad. Um, yeah, no, it might also be people being preppers too, right? Like we do have, I have been thinking about prepper stuff, you know, since this happened, obviously. And we had rolling blackouts here in California, as you probably know. Mm -hmm. And so I got a generator, like a gasoline generator. And then I was looking into getting a diesel generator for my house and getting the solar panels and the power wall so that if the system goes down, I have both the, you know, whatever, one or two days of the power wall. And if we had an extended thing, you could get for like five grand, like a diesel generator on the side of your house. That'll run indefinitely if you just keep getting more diesel fuel. So I was looking at all of that. And then I was thinking, wait a second, in an actual, you know, get out of Dodge situation, what would it be better to have? a Tesla or a gas power car. And, you know, it would seem to me that, you know, there, there are advantages to both. I don't know what you think. What would you rather have in the zombie apocalypse, gas or electric? I'm going to say gas. <laughs> Why? Um, it's easier to just put gas in your car and start driving, right? Versus mm -hmm. waiting. Yep. E even if you're waiting, like if we're talking zombie ap apocalypse, um, which is the exact situation you presented right now. <laughs> but if we're just yeah, talking zombie, zombie apocalypse. apocalypse and you need a rush, you need to go. I mean, yeah. what does it take you? Like two minutes to fill up your tank? It doesn't take that much. I mean, right. but here to the contrary though, right? I'm going to throw this in. If you were escaping a zombie apocalypse, there would be a long line at the gas station most likely. Correct. So filled with zombies, right? So and that's the problem. Now the Tesla purchase actually sounds like a good idea. So <laughs> yeah, I think in the short term, the short term gas is better because you can go further, right? You can just get a couple of tanks of gas and put it in your trunk, right, and fill up your gas tank from your trunk um, if you were lucky enough to get gas. However, in year two of the zombie apocalypse, when all the gas is gone and everybody's doing that, you know, tube and doing the suctioning stuff and trying to siphon gas out. 
you're going to feel pretty smart for finding some solar panels and charging your car every 30 days and then going out on a run and coming back because your car works forever right. if you have solar panels. Yeah, and I will say there is one – the reason why I like Rivian, and you know, I'm sure over the course of these podcasts I'll, I'll unveil a little bit more on why I think Rivian's you know, a top player in, in this space. But they're actually creating like a really cool peer-to-peer charging network. Um, so – or charging protocol where if let's say you're out in the desert and you need a charge from someone, you'd actually be able to link up your charging cable to another car or vice versa. What is that? Like an inverter or something? Yeah. Yeah. And that's awesome. Like the Cybertruck has that by the way. So remember he said you could plug in a generator or something and you had the inverter. What what I like about the Cybertruck too is that you could easily just sleep in the back. If you're talking zombie apocalypse. Perfect for zombie. I mean, also for the zombie apocalypse, I think there's sharp angles when you're, you know, going through a horde are going to deflect them off of there. And the Rivian's got a flat front, which I mean, I think that means you're going to get a lot of zombies under the hood. Right, yeah. And, and I, I'm inviting you, if all If you could put a cattle, <laughs> you got to put a snowplow on the front of the Rivian and you're fine. I, I'm inviting if you all can find our a listeners, snowplow. if you're listening to this right now, email johan at inside.com. What is your zombie apocalypse getaway car? And yeah, what's your ride? Zombie rides. It's a new feature. <laughs> <laughs> zombie no, which rides. Is but one, which is but one type of apocalypse like what if we just had uh well it feels like, like we're actual... already going through an actual apocalypse i mean <laughs> yeah i know but it's not like the car you drive impacts the coronavirus in any way like with the exception of the fact that i do have the biohazard mode on my model x which when i drive the model my wife has the model x and when i drive hers i always put it on that because the air gets so clean mm. that it's like being in a clean room have you ever been in one no i have they have the hepa no you ever been in a really like sterile environment where they have like a great uh, air filter in the room? Oh, you're talking like a hospital, and, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've been I've been inside of a or hospital. Some places just have like really good air filtration. So I I have like these uh, IQ Air. Um, uh, when I was in LA, we lived near the highway, so we had these IQ Airs in every room, and our the air quality in our house was ridiculously high quality, like like literally safe room like making silicon chips clean. Oh, wow. Uh, and that's what it's like when you're in that car. All, you can really actually, I can tell. You can tell the difference. When I take a deep breath, yeah, it feels clean in your nose. And I don't know, I, I, and I could feel it when I had the IQ Air on because I have asthma. And it's um, it really is something to see, like how powerful that um, is in the Model X, the biohazard mode. Now, I don't know if it protects against the coronavirus, but- at some point, they'll probably test it. But I'm sure at a certain part or a certain point, it helps, right? Um, kind of going on to the well, next knows? topic yeah. here. Uh, so layoffs have been affecting Uber, Lyft, and Lime. Uber is considering mm-hmm. laying off about 20% of its staff. Uh, the move would probably save the company about $1 billion, it's estimating. But these layoffs haven't been finalized yet and would likely happen in stages. Uh, they're proposing about cutting... A little more wow. over five thousand of their twenty-seven thousand employees. Lyft Just is kind of responding wow. with similar, uh, you know, job cuts. They're reducing about seventeen percent, seventeen percent of their workforce. Workforce <laughs> uh, yep. about nine hundred nine hundred eighty-two of the company's four thousand employees would be laid off. Uh, hmm. Some of those layoffs are in the form of furloughs, 
And Lime, which is the scooter sharing company, is also reducing its workforce by another 13%, which at this point is 80%, or sorry, 80 employees of the company's 1,300 employees, or roughly 1,300 employees will be left to go. Um, earlier this year, the company cut about 100 employees and pulled out of 12 markets. Uh, one thing to note is that Uber previously said it had enough cash to survive through the pandemic and would still have money in the bank. Why are we seeing so many layoffs from these transportation companies while they're, yeah. they still have cash in the bank? Uh, Jason, as somebody who's run, you know, many businesses, I'm, I'm kind of, I kind of want to pick your brain and see what, what's some of the strategy behind laying off all these workers. If there's, you know, confidence from both brands that they'd be able to get back into business after the pandemic and thrive. Yeah, it's a abundance of caution is one thing, and then um, not wasting a crisis to get rid of low performing employees is the unspoken topic that occurs. Mm. So let me explain that. There are people like Jack Welch who felt you cut 5% of your employee for workforce, I believe was his number. Uh, somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, he would do performance reviews and they just cut the bottom 5%. Um, it was like a standard he asked all of his managers to do. Just, you know, if you got 200 people on your team, you're getting rid of, you know, 10 of them every year who are the lowest performers. And it's just a healthy way to run a high performance company. Seems pretty cutthroat, right? Yeah. Um, and it is. And the dialogue I hear from founders, because I'm obviously uh, an angel investor in companies, is the dialogue goes something like this. We have 18 months of runway. We want to get it to 24 just in case there's a second or third wave of this, and it goes longer than we expected. And of that, you know, bottom 20%, eh, you know, half of them are not the high performers. You're obviously not cutting the high performers when you do this. And- all of these companies tend to be over, um, they tend to have more employees than they need. Mm. And so the reason you do that is in a growing market, you want to not have people burn out. You want to have extra capacity in order to take on new projects opportunistically. So you build up redundancy, which is important for resiliency, and you want to have the ability to do projects. So let's take inside.com. Uh, we, have, we have less... Uh, researchers and journalists than we need right now. We're trying to find some um, and we'll be opportunistic during the downturn, obviously. But most companies, like if you were Vox or you were a business insider, well, that's owned by a big company. But if you're Vox, Vice, BuzzFeed, and let's say you were you were going for growth, right? You had venture money, you were going for growth, you were going big. You might say, you know what? Cutting the bottom 20% is not going to change our revenue, but it will change our expense. Mm. So we can't make more money, but we can spend less. And so this is like the cutthroat, candid conversation that you don't hear in press releases and journalists are never going to talk about because, frankly, journalists, no offense to you, John, journalists are not inside. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's one of the things that you know I get a little bit tweaked out about because I used to be a journalist and then an editor, and now a business owner, or you know, it was kind of all three of those things at the same time. The inside discussion is really about this, hey, let's, let's get rid of the low performers. If we don't know what our revenue growth is going to be, at least we can control our spend. So let's cut the spend. Let's cut the low uh, performers. Let's lean on the high performers, right? So what's going to happen in all these organizations is the high performers are going to be asked to take on more work the low performers are going to be cut. The runway is going to be extended. And then you can always start you know, going for growth and having additional capacity later. That's really 
what the dialogue is internally. Now, I'm not saying I endorse any of this or don't endorse it. I'm just being candid with you about, you asked me what the decision-making process is. Right. That's what's happening at board level. That's what happens when the HR person, the CFO, and the CEO leave the building and go for a walk and get a cup of coffee. That's actually what they're doing. Mm. They're looking at the departments and saying, you know what, we just hired this person for 150K a year, and they're not actually bringing it. And they're number two who's getting paid 90,000 a year. That person can do their work. This person's just a name. You know, they just look good on our website. They're not actually bringing the thunder. Let's cut them, right? And mm. so there's this very tactical, strategic, who's a low performer, who's a high performer, and it's literally like trading baseball cards in the boardroom. People are just cutting, cutting, cutting. And I, this is the thing that's been terrorizing for me and keeping me up at night. I haven't been able to sleep. I've been having a little bit of a sleep problem because I, I, I don't have to just worry about inside in my investment company launch. I have 150 portfolio companies. I'm talking to the founders, and I'm watching some companies furlough everybody or cut half the team. And these are people who they were in board meetings last year saying, you're not going to believe this person. We got this all-star. I need your permission to spend an extra 50K a year on this person. But you know, if we don't get them, they're going to go to Google or they have three job offers. And the same person that they were lobbying the board to overpay is now being cut like in a heartbeat. Wow. And this is why people who are you know, stay at home forever, the stay at home forever crowd, stay at home until there's a cure, which is, you know, 18 to 18 months to 18 years from now. Like literally people think, you know, like this could be 18 years before we have a, you know, a vaccine. Right. Or it could be 18 months. Who knows? Nobody yeah. knows. The people who are taking shelter in place to the extreme, like are typically people who work behind a keyboard like you and I and are not at risk. Mm -hmm. But the other folks are at risk. And it's not just restaurant owners. It's not just Uber and Lyft and DoorDash drivers anymore. It's it's literally, if this goes on for another three months, you're going to see the middle class get wiped out. And then if it goes on for 12 months, the same keyboard jockeys who are more than willing to tell people they're idiots for wanting to go back and that they're insensitive and that lives matter more than livelihoods, that crowd of liberal elite keyboard jockeys is going to lose their jobs. Right. And, and, and that has an effect on like Uber and Lyft because they're the ones taking those rides. And I'm going to present this. They're taking Uber Black. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to present the situation to you. Do you think that if we see a smaller Uber or a smaller Lyft, there's going to be a point where they just merge operations? I think the likely scenario, um, I don't think you'll see Uber by Lyft. I do think that a Lyft, a DoorDash, um, and uh, po uh, Postmates, you know, some some of that cohort could combine and then lower costs. So imagine if you took all of Postmates and you combined it with Lyft and DoorDash. You took those three companies. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't need three CFOs. You don't need three CEOs, right? You just put all the accounts together. You pick whichever brand speaks the most to people and then the other brands go away and it'd be Lyft, DoorDash, or it'd be DoorDash would be the overarching brand and Lyft would get, you know, subsumed into DoorDash. Those both seem to be about the same valuation, seven, eight million Seven, eight billion. So that's a more likely scenario. But I do think if Uber stays under 60 billion in market cap, I think that Amazon buys them. Wow. Spoken from Jason Calcanis, the man himself. <laughs> um, I mean, you're well, really good at this, by the way. I really like our time together. I feel like I learn so much when we do this because, you know, it's not transportation, with the exception of the Uber investment, is not my wheelhouse it's yours and i really always learn something so i really appreciate this time we have together right well one thing you're about to learn is um well not really learn but one thing i want your opinion on is mm. today's dope or nope 
Uh, okay, here we go. This is a segment where we decide whether something is dope or nope. Uh, and today we have the Xping P7 sedan. And Jason, tell me dope or nope before I kind of explain the background uh, of this nope. vehicle. Nope. I've seen this vehicle 10 years ago. It was an Austin Martin or looks like a, a slightly elongated Model S that I've owned for a decade. It's a hard nope for me. The inside is uninspired and boring. Uh, this looks derivative. And it kind of uh, looks like yeah, a Fisker, no? Like a Fisker, like in like an yeah, it's Fisker somewhere. Karma. It's like if the Fisker Karma, which was disgusting, uh, in my mind, I thought it was gross. Um, uh, if the if the disastrous Fisker uh, and a Model S and a Austin Martin were put on the you know, in Photoshop and somebody did a bad job of blending them together, this is the result. It's it's a hard note for me. Z-Ping, P7, garbage. Don't, don't look it not up interested. yet, but I'm going to ask you this. I'm not. Okay. I, I don't know what the specs are on this. <laughs> I mean, maybe it goes a thousand miles and has zero to 60 in one second and, and it flies. How, and it goes to merge How much do you but think- But on the this, aesthetic, no. <laughs> how much do you think this car costs? Well, can I ask you- what the battery range is in miles. Okay, yes. So I'm going to tell you this. The P7 can travel up to 438 miles on a single charge. And this is according to, to um, China's is this ministry. They just opened it up for sale. So they okay. opened it up. 400 mile range. 438. Um, but <sighs> it's based on it's on it's based on uh, China's Ministry of Industry and Information's uh range rating <laughs> so th those oh, yeah, are not okay. like if you're comparing epa to mit ratings yeah. i mean epa ratings are yeah, a lot okay. more accurate so maybe it's more like 320 or something right it hasn't been rated uh, yet um by the epa yeah. but um yeah i'm i'm shocked that the ccp would put out bad data but putting that aside <laughs> uh it is china Yes, and the so company received have... permission to actually test this vehicle on U.S. roads earlier this year, but oh. there hasn't been any indication yet that they're going to sell it. Um, but you never know, right? Um, anyway, that I'm going to say said, fifty. I'm going to say fifty thousand. Fifty thousand. Same same price as the Model Three. I don't think they'll hit it, but I'm going to say it's a fifty thousand. Are you going to say that? I don't know after subsidies or before subsidies. I was going to say that before subsidies because it is made in China. I'm just saying, I think in China they sell it for $50,000 before subsidies. Okay. I think it's $50,000. So just for reference, subsidies in China is like $4,000 off. So Jason's okay. putting his bet in at $45,000 for this car. Forty-six. yep. Um, okay. Just a little bit more reference. The Model 3 long range is rated at 414 miles by MIT. So this vehicle is actually rated like 15 miles more than the Model okay, 3 Okay, so the same. Range. Um, right. And that's a $60,000 car, correct? Yeah, it's like $50,000 in China after subsidies. Okay. So this vehicle costs $36,000. Wow. Yeah. Significantly less. 10K less than I thought. Right. Um, um, and so I guess the safety is another issue here and the build quality, but who, and it doesn't have self-driving, obviously. So. Um, th that's the other thing. <laughs> so oh. a former <laughs> Tesla employee who went to go work for Xping admitted he uploaded autopilot source code to iCloud last year that he was probably going to bring to Xping. So. <laughs> what? And <laughs> yeah. China is going to allow this and they, ha they built a, a factory there? I mean, the thing is that he he was at, oh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. and this is like a like a long story, very short. But this engineer had was working at Tesla. 
he went to go work for Xping and like literally before he went on the flight to go to China, they like captured him. Like like the government was already onto him for doing this. Wow. So there was a lot of good like recon, I guess, on Tesla's end that this was happening. But um mm. yeah, I mean Xping is a is a one of the more promising like EV startups in China. Right. Um awesome. and uh they're they already opened this car up for sale uh, this week. Deliveries are expected later this year, so in the fall. Um, but yeah, interesting that you thought this was a fifty thousand dollar car. Yeah, it looks like a looks like a fifty thousand dollar car. It's well, wait, is China. it a nope or dope for you? Nope. Forget about the price for a second. Okay, if I'm just looking do it at the same way car, I did. Okay, I'm brainwashing myself, and I'm going to forget everything I just told you. I'm gonna just imagine it's a fifty thousand dollar car, and the, aesthetically, what would you pay? Was it nope or dope at fifty k? At fifty k, nope. I, it's just not inspiring. Like it just looks exactly. like every other electric vehicle that's coming out on the market. Totally derivative. And yeah. uh, now at thirty six k, the price is dope. Yeah, and if it There's goes no like four hundred miles on a charge, then that's super dope. Yeah. Okay. And so I there like we go. that. It's a, it's a like nope if, then if dope. If you look at the interior, look at that nice little screen in the center. I like that. It looks nice. Yeah. Uh, I like the floating one from Tesla better. Do you do you, what about I, Okay, so what about that display that's behind the wheel? Do you do you like the fact that Tesla doesn't have that in the 3 and the in the Y? I'll be honest about that. I I would like there to be um a monitor there. I I do understand why they're not doing it cuz they think it's going to be self-driving. Eventually, and everybody will be looking at the center screen to watch Netflix. But I prefer to be able to look down and see that. What I ultimately prefer is the heads-up display that I had in my Corvette C6, which put the gear you in, your RPMs, and your speed floating on the windshield. Oh, yeah. So you didn't have to take your eyes off the road. I don't know why. Why don't all cars have that mandatory? Well, they have an aftermarket kit where you can actually install um, a heads-up display. What's that called? So I think they actually have one for Tesla. They should look up. They do? Or, yeah. Or all, can all... we talk about that next week? I'm going to buy that. Hey, um, can somebody take a note? Buy that for me and install it on my computer. <laughs> I'll look it <laughs> up for you. I'll send it to you. Yeah, send it to me because I want that. Yeah. No, here's the thing. I, I If we really want to have people keep their eyes on the road, let them see on that projector in front of them the last text message that came in, the speed, et cetera. Because people look at their text messages anyway, and if the text message just displayed there for a couple of seconds, you're looking through it. I don't think it distracts you. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Does anybody do that? Put the text messages up there? I'm going to send you something in the, sh in the, in the Slack real quick uh -huh. for you to see. Um, and I'm going to put in the show notes okay, for all our go. listeners. But... Volkswagen actually, they're coming out with the ID3, which is their big, like, this is going to be Volkswagen's oh, look at that. Model 3, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. they actually have like a built in heads up display as an option. I see it. Where yeah. if, let's say, you have the navigation on, it actually displays it like Tells on you the, the turn. windshield. So much better. And I mean, so much I thought that was awesome. I think this car is actually going to be really cool um, to see how it kind of plays out. Sadly, what do you think about putting the music up there and, you know, like changing the radio station or seeing your last text message? That's freaking awesome. Look I love that. But yeah. would that be, if you put the text message up there, would that be distracting or not? Like if you put 140 characters up there, I don't think it's distracting, but, but I guess it's more distracting than not having it. Yeah, I mean, my only my only reservation there is that most voice systems, um, except for Alexa, for some reason, they have a lot of trouble deciphering what you're actually saying. 
So even mm-hmm. if I had the option to, you know, reply to I'm a I'm just text saying message, for reading, just for reading. Forget about it. Oh, oh, no, that's I, awesome. Yeah. I would love would to. Would that be allowed to show it there or is that not allowed? Like what's the law in terms of what you can put on that heads up display? I wonder. That's, that's a, a really that's a good, good note for you. Why don't you ask that, answer that question in the next uh, Inside Transportation? I will. And uh, What can you put on that? What are the rules around heads up displays? Yes. We're going to look into it. Um, and if I have to consult Isn't there an a expert, rule for looking down to your, what, what is the, when you look down at your navigation or you look down at your radio, there's a certain amount of time they say you're allowed to like glance down. Do you know what that is? Cause there's some test that they do where like entering information into your navigation is not allowed, but changing the size of the, of the screen or, you know, changing the radio station is. I didn't know so that. How, I got to really, I got to Yeah, there's some amount up. of, look it up because there's some, it'd be a good dialogue for us to have about distractedness because there is some inherent distraction in changing the radio, right? right. Or looking down and changing the temperature. And I wonder how, um, you know, the, which agency would be responsible for, for that in the United States? Yeah, it might be state <gasps> by state too. Oh, yeah. So there so might anyway, be we should look legislation into that. for like Texas and California and whatnot. But yeah. next episode of Inside Transportation, yeah. we will have more information on that. Okay. Uh, and that's a wrap. I mean, we're, we're here at time. All right. Uh, Great job. Thanks so much, Jason, for participating My in this pleasure. lively conversation of all these different transportation topics. Just a reminder to subscribe to our newsletters, Inside Transportation and Inside Electric Vehicles. Uh, you can find them at inside.com. Any closing words, all Jason? Right. Uh, no, I'm really enjoying doing this, and thanks everybody for tuning in, and thanks to our sponsors for making it possible. I'm 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 having the time of my life, and I'm learning a lot. Great. All right, inside we're looking for some researchers, uh, so if you know anybody who's looking for a gig, yes, um, you can uh, email freelance at inside.com. Freelance at inside.com. We're looking for researchers, really. So there's journalists who come with a lot of baggage and who write like very beautiful prose. What we need is we're we're kind of more of a research company and more like uh, analytics. So we're looking for people with a little more. If I had to pick between like the ability to write beautiful prose versus the ability to surface great information and data, I'm going to go with the latter, right? Which is what we're trying to do in these newsletters is really make you smarter by reading them. Yes, all remote, and uh, you know, all remote. Let's, let's all rally together to be here for each other in these times of need. So if you know anyone 100. who you know is looking for something. Uh, freelance at inside.com. Is that the email? Thanks. Yeah, that's it. All right. Because what we typically do is we'll give some people some freelance work. And if it works out, then we hire them full time. Yeah, that's awesome. All You're right. freelance, right? Yes. I am a cool. freelance. Um, right. And that's it for the Inside Transportation Podcast. Thanks so much, Jason. Awesome. <laughs>